not sure about you, but I have found myself particularly anxious and restless this week. Almost like growing pains. We're in this uncomfortable liminal space. Not quite there and not quite where we were or even who we were. In fact, we might have less answers than we did when everything began. And it's in the season that I've done quite a bit of wrestling with God, with the meaning of community, with the meaning of words, actions, salvation. And something that's been brought up multiple times throughout the last few weeks is the desire to dive a little deeper into the conversation around atonement. What does it mean universally? What does it mean for us in the particular? And this is purely meant to be a continuation of the conversation, one that is embedded in the life source of the church and one that will continue to be co-collaborative in how we shape this space and community. And I recognize the wide diversity that we hold within the body of this church and hope to approach this conversation with as much grace, tenderness, and curiosity as I can possibly muster. I have no idea how long this will take, nor whether it will provide you any concrete answers. Atonement brings up everything from what is sin, to the essence of the cross, to what resurrection looks like, and I might try to cover all of that, but I know that few love three-hour lectures with the person who's hopped up on way too much caffeine trying to explain the meaning of life. But what I do hope to approach is a laying out of all the cards on the table. Take a look and a listen into everything that's presented here and pay attention to what is potentially missing in the conversation. May it aid your faith, your questions, and your desire to go deeper. I think it's especially important when we enter into these conversations about the rooting of our faith to understand from where we are entering into the conversation. What's your location? What's your background in church? Have you always believed similar things about Jesus, the Trinity, etc.? Have you wrestled with faith to the point of questioning everything you believe? Does your belief differ or resemble what your family of origin believes? That gives good insight into how, before even entering the conversation, the idea of breaking down the walls of your faith might elicit an emotional or visceral response in you. And that's absolutely okay. For me, my location entering into this conversation as someone who strongly believed and reinforced an evangelical understanding of the cross, the personhood of Jesus, and everything else that falls in line with salvation through resurrection tells a lot about how I might think about these things and what it would take to loosen my grip on those theologies in search of something more of what my beliefs fall in line with. And I intentionally lead with that word more instead of else because I haven't abandoned everything that I formed my faith around, but I've come to new understandings of those things. However, it's not so easy to shift the collective understanding of the theme of saving. Our society, Hollywood, are all obsessed with this notion of a savior. 
We see everything from Disney princesses to C.S. Lewis using the savior model, consciously or unconsciously nodding to the grand story of a perfect savior for the one that needs saving. Maintaining this hierarchical, I saved you notion is beneficial for more than just Hollywood making bank. It extends to the American savior complex and so many other constructs. However, the notion of salvation wasn't originally rooted in all of this, though. In the minds of Jewish prophets, when they talked about salvation of Israel, it meant liberation for everyone in real time. It meant having the boot lifted from their neck. It meant getting moving out of the hell that they were living in. It didn't have anything to do with an individual saying a prayer or performing a ritual. It was a collective movement. So let's dive into some history, shall we? These theories of salvation, of the basis of the Christian faith, are called atonement theory. This is our imagination of the cross, seeking to openly discuss Jesus' experience of suffering and the debt, quote-unquote, that was paid on the cross, with a varying understanding of the cross's purpose, perpetuation, and reality. So questions like, to whom was the debt owed? Why was suffering involved? Who is covered by the blood and what is required? The bulk of Western Christianity falls in line with the theory called penal substitutionary theory. It's one of the more modern theories of atonement devised by reformers like Calvin and Luther, who took an older theory and modified it slightly. The result is that within this theory, Jesus Christ dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Jesus is punished in the place of sinners, substitution, in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. So imagine a written contract in which this settlement has been written up and there's just nothing God can do except require what's been written. Now, in light of Jesus' death, God can now forgive the sinner because Jesus Christ has been punished in the place of sinner. In this way, meeting the retributive requirements of God's justice. In inviting, or rather often forcing people into this objectively transactional relationship, there were additional political and theological powers that pastors or priests gained by being a middleman in this blameful stamp on the believer, right? In every service, in many songs, believers are reminded of their detriment, their inability to be blameless or acceptable outside of this one act committed by the person of Jesus. And when the series is not questioned, it can be easy to just accept that belief and accept our faith, our fate as our identity of sinner. But why was a death involved? If this legal demand was being made by God, but the personhood of God is three persons in one, who is God actually sending to die? For anyone who's had those questions come up in their mind, even briefly, it's tempting to start tugging at that string. Then come the onslaught of other questions, and pretty soon you've unraveled the entire tapestry of belief. But no fear, there's other just as confusing options to choose from. Rather than God paying God in a legal framework, you could stumble upon the ransom theory, essentially claiming that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the time of the fall, 
Hence, justice required that God pay the devil a ransom. But the devil doesn't realize that Christ can't be held in the bonds of death. So once the devil accepts Christ's death as ransom, the series concluded, justice was satisfied, and God was able to free us from Satan's grip. But if God is paying off Satan, isn't that kind of controversial? Who's really in charge, then? So you could go the Christus Victor route instead and just say that Jesus beats death and evil and resurrection, but it's often vague and doesn't really offer a ton of answers. You could take it back to where the panel substitutionary theory originated from, to satisfaction, from our good friend Anselm. In this theory, Christ's death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God, right, still. Satisfaction here means restitution, the mending of what was broken, and the paying back of a debt. In this theory, Anselm emphasizes the justice of God and claims that sin is an injustice that must be balanced. So Jesus Christ, as perfection, is able to pay back that imperfect debt. A quick survey of these theories, so something just doesn't quite sit right for me. There seems to be a number of loose ends in any option, and all ultimately lead back to easy access to shame and guilt. There's something about the idea of a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die that just doesn't quite sit right. And this is something that's voted on throughout the history of a denomination to reaffirm or deny it, such as the case of the Southern Baptist Convention, whose most recent vote in 2017 affirmed this belief with ease. It was just the case of penal substitutionary theory, any amount of questioning of the beliefs might show some obvious issues. It makes God out to be a vengeful father. In terms of justice, the father has to punish the innocent son rather than the guilty. In addition, this approach to the atonement doesn't answer the question of morality. In fact, you could make the case that this theory removes morality from the equation. It also makes the personhood of Jesus only boil down to one act of dying on the cross. So here's where I start to lay out some frameworks or locations to see the process of atonement just through a slightly different lens. Maybe with a different pair of glasses on might be a good image. My counselor this week gave me a helpful tool for understanding and managing my anxiety that can quickly start to spiral if I get caught up asking too many what-if questions. What if my car breaks down? What if I can't get everything done on time? What if this opportunity falls through? And instead of focusing on the what-ifs, she asked me to focus on the what-is. Grounding statements usually beginning with, I am. I am safe. I have community who loves me. I have close friends who can help me. I think a similar approach can be helpful when entering the unknowns of faith. Do they necessarily answer all those what-ifs right away? No, but it slows us into thinking about what we can confirm about the divine. Some would say you can't confirm anything, but I would start with a Christ-centric statement here to say that Jesus' life was important. His ministry was important. 
all those who encountered him had the potential of experiencing a life-altering encounter with God's grace and power. It wasn't a prologue. It was part of the already happening story of God's working in the world and quote-unquote saving of the world. So another theory of atonement comes to us in the form of moral influence theory. Here, Jesus simply came and died to bring positive change. Within this theory, the death of Christ is understood as a catalyst to reform society, inspiring men and women to follow his example and live good moral lives of love. In this theory, the Holy Spirit comes to help Christians produce this moral change. And in this theory, it does become about morality to a point where it's taught that outside of judgment of salvation, there is this added aspect of stewardship. This is something that was talked about early on in Christian history, and it's this teaching that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, not just from a self-object of sin. This would make the cross an act of martyrdom. So that what then is the significance of resurrection? Part of the answer is maybe that the resurrection provides an evidence that an atonement has occurred. The resurrection would extend the impact of his death and thereby extend the impact of his life and teachings. Let's get into the text, right? I'd like to offer that what if the Bible isn't necessarily right or wrong, but is merely a facilitator rather than a teacher? I think the text offers us less of a literal teacher and much more of a facilitator in that it sets the stage for us to do the work. Sometimes we might need more guidance and intentional word. Other times we can lean into our experience outside of the word. So in this text brings up a few different things, and I'll read the NRSV version again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral that can be used to approach our faith. There are four markers, tradition, scripture, reason, and experience. And all inform a well-rounded expression and understanding of our belief. When we talk of experience, though, we can't universalize our experience as the norm. And when we think about reason, we have to ask, whether reason is established by Eurocentric ideals or if it includes voices from the margins. When we discuss scripture, we have to ask who is interpreting and if it's being used to empower people or to subjugate them. And when we bring up tradition, you have to look at the whole of the Christian story, including our 2,000-year history in its fullness and not pick around the parts we wish didn't exist. So based on all those four things, how would you read this passage. I enjoyed the take on the text from the message version too, which reads, with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us 
no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could have never done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. So what would reason tell you about the story of Christ? What does tradition tell you? Life experience in the scripture. All of these go into your metaphorical toolbox. The hammer doesn't pick itself up, but aids us in our deconstruction or reconstruction. The law here is shown as something that wasn't meant to be a stand-in, but never got itself. Something greater was needed to shift humanity, to heal its fractures. The message version also acknowledges the difference between us trying to measure up on our own versus allowing God's power to aid in the holy work they're doing through us. I'd reckon that God knew that something big had to happen to catch people's attention and to actually move them into action. We can see how quickly life returns to normal after something drastic occurs, or at least the temptation of pretending life can go back to normal. So perhaps in that, the story of a dramatic death becomes important. So all these influence how we rationalize through Christ's story. The whole thing hinges on retributive justice in one form or another, whether it's in the need for a sacrifice or just the frame that something needed to change. It's especially how the penal substitution theory is framed. There are many images of God's justice coming into the lives of people, and it's absolutely possible to explore that outside of a mere condemnation of sinner nature. In covenant community of the Old Testament and even a gauge we see Jesus using, is that the measure of justice is how well the most vulnerable are faring, whether the poor, the widow, the orphan, receive equal protection under law and are granted adequate access to basic goods, shelter, rest, and are allowed full participation in society. And examples of God siding with the people shows that God has chosen the side of the oppressed, over and over again, in direct disapproval and rejection of the oppressor. Rather than remain neutral, God acts. 
in the person of Jesus, he becomes a commitment of redemptive solidarity, beginning life amongst the misplaced, the homeless, the refugee. God pitches tent in the middle of humanity and says, me too. We move even into Jesus' death, right? At the minimum, Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, who was condemned as a rebel fighting against Roman occupation in the city. He was poor and oppressed, and Jesus literally takes his place, dying a socially shameful death as an innocent brown Jew. And we know that he did so much in his life than just his death. A quote from Pastor Don Hutchings, Jesus was a courageous Jewish man who gave the best possible human expression he could to the gracious, life-giving, compassionate, divine presence within him. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus taught with authority. We can presume that this is not the sort of authority that temple priests and the legal experts from Jerusalem exercised, but the authority of someone who lived what he preached. Jesus was the man who knew the pains and struggles of the human condition. And yet he demonstrated in his own pain and struggle that it was possible to hold on to belief in the utter goodness and graciousness of God. To trust in the presence of God, whatever the darkness. Jesus lived in integrity to the fullest extent possible. He did what many others have done and continue to do. He stood up for what he believed and accepted the consequences. Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem was precisely that. He knew that in the face of such a corrupt, violent regime as the powers that be and were, he was about to take a stand that would set him at odds with evil, and he was willing to do so. Jesus was willing to die for what he had lived his life to exemplify. So if that gives meaning to what Jesus' life and death mean, maybe we can make some more sense out of atonement. For me, a frame that's been helpful in the process is the combination of this moral influence theory and the idea that God, out of great love, offers us life in in comparison to the destruction that we can cause ourselves. In essence, saving us from ourselves and what we could be. Atonement is the act of being reconciled to God, not necessarily the act of a specific blood sacrifice. For a play on words, at one minute, if you will. Kevin Garcia begins their book, Bad Theology Kills, with a grounding message, centering capital L love as a starting point to the undoing of the threatening messages that the bad theologies some grew up around. To be in love, capital L love, is to be so caught up in the reality of our communion with God that we naturally flow in our purpose, bringing healing to everyone around us. It is our natural state. It's where we came from and to where we will return. When we can remember that we are included in capital L love, our lives are richer. So the question is, rather than potentially operating out of those guilt and shame frameworks that require us to always remember how indebted we are to a blood sacrifice, 
how do we pursue oneness with God? In that we are imperfect and exist in stacked systems, it's hard to do that work alone. If you've ever been in a one-sided relationship with a human, imagine the catastrophic struggle of existing in a one-sided relationship with the divine. To seek and find oneness and at one men. It is a relational miracle in which God's salvific power is at work. That's why Jesus came into the world. It was Jesus' consistent message throughout the Gospels and from the very beginning of his ministry. The message of Monday Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday do not stand in opposition to this but in complete and total consistency with all that's come before. God so loved the world that God sent Jesus into the world with a message of good news. Not so that Jesus would die, but so that all who believed would find life, wholeness, and love. The events of Holy Week simply affirm that God can't be defeated by human evil. But what about sin? All of these theories I've talked about assume the notion of sin. And I would concur in that sin, I believe, still exists. We're not void of falling short of our purpose of justice, of mercy, of love. I would frame sin as anything that disturbs shalom, whether it be with God or another. So things like gun violence, racism, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, murder, all of these things disturb shalom and can happen on an individual or institutional level or somewhere in between. So just because our definitions, our doctrine, our faith might shift doesn't mean that we have to completely throw out all of the imagery and concepts that have proven helpful to move us towards pursuing a better, more Christ-like world. So what happens in our process? What might resurrection look like inside of us? The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, is more closely translated to changing one's mind. We've covered over the past few weeks that it's absolutely okay to change your mind upon receiving new information and conviction, healthy even. We can experience revelation of newness, and our process will include over and over the process of order disorder, and reorder as we gain new experiences, new reason, new tradition, and new understandings of scripture. Ultimately, are these things challenging us towards things that we can and should hold on to, like justice, like love, like fill in the blank? You don't have to get rid of the materials that your faith was or has been built on, but it might be worth taking a look at the strength of construction of what you maintain currently. I mean, heck, Jesus changed his mind in the example Ryan gave a couple weeks back, where Jesus meets a woman at the well, calls her a dog, but she responds and he says, woman, your faith is great. Because of that, you've been saved. It's a holy thing to be allowed to change your mind. If I still hold the idea that Jesus existed as a perfect human, then it would affirm that His expressions of holy rage were perfect. That changing his mind after receiving new information was still perfect. 
And as you comb through some of what's been presented here, I leave you with a reminder that this is just a continuation of the conversation. But I also invite you to ask some questions. What's the message of the cross concerning, concerning economic justice? Inter-ethnic and inter-religious conflict. Christian disunity. You name it. And it might aid you in finding what else there is left to explore. Faith is never complete and always a work in progress. You know, it's not lost on me that I am a young, female, queer student pastor preaching on the depth and breadth of atonement theory. And I do not claim to be an expert, only to be a facilitator. In my book, you are the true expert on the nature of your relationship with God. The spaces that still need healing, what brings you strength, and what causes you to falter. It might be daunting to start pulling on that string, the question in the back of your mind that might unravel your faith. It might. It might undo the whole thing. But think of the beautiful new creations you can make out of that messy pile of string that you've been left with. I would affirm that God does not leave us in the wrestling or our unraveling. If anything, I would say we're decidedly closer to God's heart and nature in those moments. It's a beautifully divine thing to change your mind. And honestly, I'm excited for the conversation that will hopefully come because we do have such a rich diversity in our understanding of our experience of the person and the story of Christ. But no matter where you might land on that spectrum, I would just say consider what disturbs shalom and allow that to be a facilitating guide of what your faith moves you towards.